0: Welcome to the American Institute of Stress's official podcast, Finding Contentment. The goal of this podcast is to highlight new information about stress and stress management techniques. While we understand that stress is a very personalized issue and different for everyone, we hope to help you find your own way to contentment. Hey, greetings, everybody. Welcome back. to This is your host and executive director of Finding Contentment. It's Will Heckman. This is the official podcast for the American Institute of Stress. And we focus on stress and stress-related issues. And I want to remind everybody, please go to stress.org and subscribe to our magazine, Contentment and Combat Stress, and it is free. So no cost for a subscription. They're both great, and I think you really enjoy them. And speaking of subscribing, i have to do the youtube thing hey press the button down there where it says subscribe hit the thumbs up hit the bell you know all that youtube stuff i really appreciate it please feel free to leave a comment love hearing from you guys today we're going to be talking about <laughs> now i was going to say my favorite subject it's almost everybody's favorite subject we're going to talk about one of the worst problems that i think uh, stress can cause and that's insomnia stress, and sleep related issues one of our guests today just wrote an article for this last issue, where as of the recording of this podcast, it's the winter issue of 2022. She wrote an issue, it's an issue all uh, um, dedicated to, to sleep. And she wrote in her article, I'm going to quote it it says, In 1789, one of the most influential founding fathers, Benjamin Franklin, famously wrote, In this world, nothing is certain except death and taxes. I'm sure you've heard that. She, she added to it. I would argue that if Franklin were alive today, he would probably have said, in this world, nothing is certain except death, taxes, and stress. And both those <laughs> things can cause stress. You know, high levels of stress, they impair our sleep, no question about it. They prolong how long it takes to fall asleep, they fragment our sleep, sleep loss, just Triggers our body stress response system. It leads to an elevation of stress hormones and cortisol in which further disrupts our sleep. It's a terrible merit that you can't get off. So what do we do? I'm going to ask. i, mean, I guess, uh, just come to the right place. AAS has many articles on sleep. As I said, one of them was written by our guest today in the winter issue of 2022 of Contentment. Go there. Go to stress.org. And joining us today, we have two guests. One of them is Rita Hitchin. And Rita is an associate lecturer at the University of Newcastle School of Medicine and Public Health, and she is completing her PhD exploring how virtual reality may be used to deliver insomnia treatment to modulate the biodirectional relationship between disordered sleep, brain function, and uh, psychiatric disorders. She is a well-respected writer, and the editor of Briefing Books on the Association of Behavioral Cognitive Therapies and joining her and me. Now we are fortunate to have Dr. Lisa Walker. Uh, she's also from the University of Newcastle. She's deputy head of School of Medicine and Public Health. And uh, she is an academic psychiatrist with a research and clinical focus on anxiety disorders, and related symptoms, of treatment, Using cognitive behavioral therapy, she's a respected educator in the undergraduate, postgraduate, and continuing medical education spaces. She's many books, educational modules, and workshops for academic and healthcare professionals and general audiences like you and I. And she aims to make her presentations clear and practical. And she maintains an active involvement also in consumer and career supportive organizations. Please join me and welcome both our guests, Lisa and Rita. Thank you so much for, for joining me today, all the way from Australia, the middle of the night. I'm not going to do the American annoying debate stuff, so <laughs> I'm sure you get tired of that. Thank you both for joining us today. Um, the first thing I wanted to ask you both about is both of you are been in the research field of academics and mental health for quite a while. How did that fascination start with you? A lot of people have very interesting stories and backgrounds and how they got into them. And Believe it or not, a lot of them have um, similarities in them. So I thought I'd ask you guys, and feel free, who wants, who wants to go first, you can do rock, paper, scissors. But go ahead.
1: You go, Lisa. I, I actually want to hear the answer to this one I actually don't know. So I'm very, very intrigued. <laughs> well,
2: I had trained as a medical doctor and um, all during my medical student years, I thought I was going to be a general practitioner, a family uh, practitioner. And um, so I duly finished my degree. I started my um, training in uh, family medicine. So there was a special training program you could do. And I became a bit dismayed because I found it felt as though patients were going in and out all day. And I stopped and thought that what I'd always really well one of the things anyway I'd liked absolutely best was the talking to people. So I actually thought gosh, what specialty can I do where I actually can just take my time and talk to people and ask them all those questions like, you know, has the dog had her puppies yet and how's (laughs) Auntie Mabel and all those questions. And so I went into psychiatry training and really right from my very first week in specialist training, I thought, yep, this is is where I belong and this is what I love and I've never gotten tired of it. So um, that's my story.
0: That's awesome, you know, because it's psychiatry. Sometimes it's a bad name um, because people feel that, uh, you know, it's it's you go obviously see an MD. But for those of you who don't know that, it's the top of your field of MDs. Um, that you go to a, a, a psychiatrist and you don't get to talk to them. They just give you a prescription, take this, see you next week. It's not it's not like that. And I applaud the fact that you really got into it because of your love of interacting with people. That's awesome. Thank you. Mariela, you
1: up. Well, mine is a little bit different. Um, I actually um, grew up in a small village in Portugal on a small farm, um, and so I had a neighbour who I subsequently now know actually had a head injury and developed locked-in oh. syndrome. But I didn't know this as a child. All I knew was there was a man three doors down that had fallen on the farm, and he... he couldn't walk, he couldn't talk, he couldn't do anything, but he could blink and he would cry if letters were read to him. And as a child, my mother would make me go and deliver bits of food, as you did when you lived kind of in a small community. And I always thought, what what is that that really nice? You know, that was always my fascination. And it started from that. And then, you know, I moved to the UK as a teenager. I grew up in Portugal by way of background and then, you know, arrived, but didn't speak any English. And I was just became quite fascinated by watching people's behavior because I couldn't speak English. So my interest was like what what could people communicate with me by their actions and their intentions and their behaviors. And those two things really led me to psychology because I at the time I didn't really know that the brain, the locked in that all of those were related. So I actually started in psychology. And then, you know, my first year of sort of basic psychology, I really got fascinated by what was then called abnormal psychology, which is actually kind of your sort of mental health and, you know, all of that domain. Unfortunately, or fortunately, it was before the publicly correct um, movement. And so abnormal psychology was the name. And I was just fascinated about what went wrong with the brain. Um, And so that's kind of where my interest in research started and how my interest with the brain started. So a different angle from Lisa, but also still the same. It's like, what drives people? What can I find out by talking to them? How can I understand things? So, both the same for us.
0: I, I share those those points of view too. You know, I I tend to be in groups of people and watch behaviors, things like that. I started out in life many years ago uh, as a, as a police officer and studied behavioral psychology there, uh, which came in handy once, of course, uh, <laughs> but. You know, so I understand that, that, you know, how you guys go going through it. I and mean, we're so lucky did. you know, we, we, we learn from people like you two that, like you said, it's not about psychology. Anyone is that normal.
2: Yeah. I, 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 I would say, too, Will, that for us, we learn from our patients all the time. It's it's kind of like the circle that keeps giving because… It really you can learn so much from books and your lecturers, but then you learn from the people you interact with. And then in turn, you pass that on to other people. So uh, that's the other thing
1: I really like about the field. That's awesome. It, and it, it's never boring, you know, and you never, you're never, never going to know it all because whenever you think you know it, then some people say, yeah, but this. So that's <laughs> what I also really like is that at any moment, however armed you think you are with everything that you have, somebody will ask you something very simple and then you're like, hmm, I actually don't have anything for that. So it's fun that way too.
0: Yeah, people can be um, complex. Yes. (laughs) And and it's like finding... Isn't that great? Oh, yeah, I I think so. Um, And it's like figuring out a puzzle. Okay, so the reason I have you guys here is because I I get asked, you know, different questions about stress all the time. A a lot of mis- information out there about stress and what it does to us. But I think it's a universal fact that we can accept that stress can affect our sleep. And Reed, I wanted to ask you because since you wrote that that article, which I thought was great, by the way, um, when did you first really start to go, oh, wait, and start to look at disrupted sleep and insomnia? and seeing the importance of
1: that. Well, I I mean, I guess first I should clarify that Lisa and I, as well as um, Associate Professor Chris Gordon, contributed to this article. So it wasn't just me, it was the three of us. Um, And I I guess I'd like Lisa to jump in on this because she's the expert on stress, and I guess sleep is the bit that fits into that. Um, But I'll give you a little bit of a quick answer, and then I hope Lisa will jump in. My interest with the relationship between stress and sleep really started with what Lisa just mentioned, which is about the clinical interface. So I was doing a lot of research, I was doing a lot of clinical assessments for research studies. And patients would say over and over again, you know, I can't sleep, I have difficulty sleeping. It just came up over and over and over again. As much as like, you know, where did you go yesterday it was, it was such a common theme that it it started to make me think, what is it about this sleep thing that comes up over and over and over again? And, you know, Lisa, you come in here now with this idea of where stress fits in, because that's how I came into the sleep. It was like it was a recurring theme amongst a range of disorders rather than something that was specific in and of itself.
2: Well, I came in perhaps particularly from the anxiety angle. So for for many years, um, uh, my particular uh, passion for uh, clinical work has been the anxiety field. Um, And, you know. I think there are two things about it that got me really interested. Um, The first is, of course, it's universal. So some of the patients, uh, some of the problems that psychiatrists help people with are things like schizophrenia, which the majority of us will never experience. We will never really experience um, psychosis, but anxiety, everybody gets anxious. So first of all, you, you had this personal experience of it. And it also created a question for me about why do some people go a bit better at not letting it get out of control and why for other people does their anxiety start running their lives rather than the other way around? So, But then the second thing that really, I guess, um, kept me hooked was it's treatable. You can actually do so much to help people manage their anxiety. And it's all in the head, uh, a lot of it, because, um, you know, as far as we know, the only species that can worry ahead about stuff that might go wrong is the human. Um, And that's where actually a lot of our trouble comes from. What if this happens? What if that happens? Kind of feeling pressure from deadlines, worrying about things that might go wrong. So, and that is stressful. I mean, that is a big source of stress. And then of course you get sleep problems. So I was really drawn to cognitive behavior therapy as a way to help people change their thinking and start to get a bit of control back in their life. Um, now, that doesn't work for everybody or not everybody gets the degree of improvement they like. So I guess that's where Rita comes in thinking, we can do better. So here's this new generation coming along saying, well, wait a minute, that's that's good. And that helps a lot of people, but it doesn't help everybody. And it's pretty hard stuff to do, which you might want to speak to Rita, because. Because I know that's your kind of angle as well. And it's absolutely true. So, you know, can we make it easier and do it better?
0: I think one of the reasons that uh, sleep is such a big topic is you hit the the nail right on the head. You made a very good point. Not everybody's going to be schizophrenic. We all sleep. Every one of us. Not every one of us is OCD. Well, maybe just me. But not every one of us has specific problems that i'm going to see uh uh, one of you guys about but all of us sleep all of us have that 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 thing in common and at some point sooner or later that anxiety is going to mess with my night's sleep yes and it becomes so important because sleep just affects every part of our life our relationships our work our our everything so exactly I think
1: that's it. And, and. and I think for both of us, the interest was both the universality of it, for one of a better word. I mean, everybody needs it. So right. if you're going to do something that's going to have a big impact, I mean, this is something that actually is very treatable very modifiable and literally everybody needs it, okay? It, it's the kind of the folic acid of, of of the kind of healthcare world. It's like, everybody's going to need that. We can put it in bread and let's just go for it. So. There was that interest, I think, the fact that both of us were interested in something that happened to everybody to varying degrees of severity, and actually if you could nip it in the bud, you could prevent a whole host of problems. And even if you were not nipping it in the bud, you could still cut it back and it would still flourish back in the spring. So there was just something that you could do something about that was positive and imminently repairable. Some conditions, you know, like schizophrenia, become more lifelong and, you know, they have a whole host of other you know, aspects that require management. But sleep is something that everybody can A, relate to and knows how awful it feels when you don't get it. You know, it's that kind of thing, like, oh, yeah, I know what that's like. And we've all had stressful night's sleep. I didn't sleep much last night because I was so nervous about today. So, you know, but that's well, okay. Well, not about this. <laughs> well, I was kind of, like, excited, but also wanting to kind of, like, be prepared. So this is kind of good stress, you know. It's right. when stress gets bad, that things get bad. So I think sometimes the problem with stress is it has this umbrella term as it being a negative thing, always negative. But there's some good things about stress. I mean, you wouldn't get out of bed if there wasn't some element of stress. I mean, we all need a little bit of it. And I think what Lisa's kind of alluding to is like when things get bad, that's when stress rules your life exactly like you said. And I, I think that that's what's interesting about us both is this component of how much can be done about it.
0: Oh, was asked High school student the other day who was, uh, every once in a while, they know I'm an easy touch and they don't want to ask me, uh, uh, interview me for a school project. I I almost always say, Yeah, they asked me about stress and I said, Well, first of all, stop thinking, as you said, all stress is negative. Without stress, you won't get an A. Without stress, you won't, like you said, get out of bed. There's you stress and there's there's, there's stress. But let's let's talk about something, just, just for the uh, uh, general information of our listeners and our viewers, um, tell us a little bit about how stress in general impacts our physical health, because that has a lot to do with our sleep as well. Sleep is, is, is such an insidious problem to have, because I'm stressed out and I can't sleep, and because I didn't sleep. Now I'm more susceptible to anxiety and I'm more stressed out, which leads me not to be able to sleep again. I'm going to let it's, Lisa it's,
1: have a go at this because she had, yeah. she's written a great book called, you know, How to Manage Your Worry, okay? And this is a yeah. way to kind of differentiate from like bad stress and good stress. So it's it's that worry component. Like that. I'll let you answer it, Lisa, and then I'll, I'll add in a little bit at the end, but it's the worry piece, as you say, it'll, worrying about what it is. It'll be a joint answer. But I, I think,
2: again, because humans have that, tendency to uh, over-process, um, what tends to happen, but actually I say that like it's all bad. The other tendency that contributes to this is a good one, which is a problem solving and an explanation tendency. So, we have a drive to try to explain things because if we can explain them, we can maybe make them predictable and then we can start to control them. Trouble is sometimes the explanations we come up with aren't all that accurate, but that's a preamble to saying if you're feeling stressed and you start not sleeping really well or you start getting really anxious for all of those things you try to work out what's causing this what can i do about it and what are the consequences of this going to be if i don't fix it but the problem there is it can become a vicious circle you worry about not sleeping which actually makes you further alert and tense and awake and worried and then, of course, the minute you get into bed, in fact, you might even be sitting there falling asleep in front of the television, you get up and go to bed and you're like, what if I don't sleep? What if I awake all night? What if I can't? And well, how will that affect me tomorrow? And then, you know, it all kind of feeds into each other. So there are definitely some physical and endocrine effects of stress on our body, but there's also this secondary psychological going over and over it and getting ourselves more and more worked up. That creates some of the problem. So you probably want to, to jump in there too. Right?
1: Yeah, I was, I was just yeah. going to say that in, in the short term, you know, there's some you know very clear pathways of how stress impacts the body from, as Lisa said, from a kind of endocrine perspective. You know, there's a dysregulation of the amount of cortisol that you have in your body that creates more arousal than would be the case. But all of these things are short-term, you know, like I said, I probably couldn't sleep very well last night, but it's a short-term impact. Now, the difficulty with starting to worry about not sleeping and the impact that that's going to cause is going to be long-term when you've had stress that kind of keeps compounding. So, for me, I wasn't worried about not sleeping as much as I was worried about making sure that I woke up on time, or you know, that I was going to be prepared for today, which is, you know, a transient type of impact on the body from a stress perspective. Now, when you have that chronic stress that goes on over a period of time that then impacts the restoration the repair and the sort of rejuvenation that sleep helps with and so when you look at chronic insomnia that's when we see all of these long-term impacts you know things like cardiovascular disease diabetes etc those are that kind of chronic stress which you know comes from as Lisa said that idea of like worrying about worrying that kind of keeps you and perpetuates you in a state of anxiety that makes it difficult to fall asleep so I I guess it's that differentiation of the short-term impact and the long-term impact that's probably important for listeners to maybe get a sense of, you know, the difference of when insomnia becomes a real big problem.
0: And I was going to ask you about that, you know, because i you know, the statistic is that 75% of doctor visits can be directly related to stress. And one of the reasons I think of that is that lack of sleep and you brought up a pulmonary coronary problem. I, and I have heard that, you know, when you're chronically sleep-deprived, you're putting your 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 health at real risk, you're putting your heart at real risk. And I, I thought that was very interesting that there was such a direct connection to that. Just to show you how important it is, that people need to really pay attention to their sleep.
2: There is, but I also, I, I think... When you hear that, you can also get quite panicky about it, which is actually going to like feed, feed into the whole problem. So I guess the other thing I like to stress to patients is that's not going to happen overnight. Um, you know, that is a kind of, you know, at least years long thing. So don't panic. You've got time to do something about it. Uh, Yeah, you should do something about it. And more importantly, there are things you can do. I mean, what stops people getting help sometimes is they feel pessimistic about Mm -hmm. whether anything can actually be done. But there is lots that can be done.
0: Well, that's why you guys are here. I'm serious. That's why you guys are here. Most of my shows are so that people can see that there is a way out. And and there are things we've had some very, very – very serious discussions on this show about people who have gone through some very very challenging issues, and there's, there they are. I'm looking at them, I'm talking to them, they're fine. So- cannot,
1: like, as, as Lisa said right at the beginning, the reason that interested her was how fixable it is. Yeah. And I think that's what's important for everybody to understand. It's never the end of the line. It's a right. bit like, even if you've smoked for 40 years, you quit today, there's some benefits, okay? it's like it's okay it's never the end of the line you know while we not breathe we, there is hope and so exactly it, you're not going to get heart disease because you've had two or three no. months of disrupted sleep but if you've had 20 or 30 years Chances are, yes, but mm-hmm. it won't just be the sleep. There'll be a whole host of other problems that you're also yeah. having. So, you know, it's important to sort of see it as a holistic thing. It's just, you know, we don't want to feed the machine that already no. is having its own
0: problems anyway. No, no, we're showing people that this is actually fixable and that it's it's, it's a yeah. doable problem. The other thing I, I I wanted to ask you guys because I feel sometimes that I'm laser focused on stress because it's my job because it's, it's a passion of mine. And, but what are some... There are other things that disrupt our sleep. I mean, it's sure. not just, oh, gee, I'm, you know, I, I'm okay, I Bull, excuse me, of being a worry boy. All right, fine. But, you know... Your, and your, not, Lisa's here. She'll help you. If you've got worry,
1: she's again. your person.
0: Good luck. Um, <laughs> it's been tried. Um, then I'll worry about what did Lisa tell me? Um... <laughs> But I wanted to ask you, what are the, some of the other things that impact our sleep?
1: You wanna start Do off,
0: here?
1: Sure, look, uh, we're discovering all the time what's impacting sleep. Um, and it's certainly not setting stone and we're learning new things every day. Now, again, there's a differentiation about what impacts sleep in the short term um, and what might kind of set off a little bit of insomnia that's kind of temporary and transient. Um, And there are things that perpetuate and kind of keep that going over a longer period of time. Now, in the short term, it's a whole range of different things, principally environmental or, you know, things that might be causing stress. It could be difficulties at work. It could be relationship issues. It could be financial stresses, you know, things that are, you know, new babies, you name it. All the things that we can all relate to, um, you know, jet lag, for instance, you know, shift work, et cetera. Now, those are all things that can kind of set off insomnia Um, But those are not always the things that perpetuate insomnia. Certainly, there are things that you can do to make it better. You know, if you are, you know, doing certain things in the day, like having 20 cups of coffee, you know, things that, you know, have an impact on – adenosine um you know a, a hormone in the brain that kind of creates arousal and wakefulness then you know we wanted to change that if you're napping in the day and you know napping in the evening in the sofa and then you're trying to get to bed and sleep well maybe you've already had those eight hours so you know there's not enough drive for sleep so there's all of those things we certainly know that children need more sleep than adults so there's all of those components but you know, the difficulty is when it becomes very chronic and it goes on over a period of time. And for those uh, situations and, and those triggers, there's things like, you know, certainly genetic predispositions. There's uh, sex differences. Women are more likely to have um, certainly disrupted sleep. And of course, components to that are things like um hormonal changes as women age, they're more likely to you know get disrupted sleep. Certainly aging itself is associated with increased insomnia, a combination of things like you know brain changes, et cetera, that contribute to that. Um, and of course, you know, mental health, we've we've spoken about this as being a very strong bi-directional relationship and how the two interplay. And if you have certain medical conditions, also you're more likely to um, develop chronic insomnia if you have things like sleep apnea, etc. So it varies as to what the risk factors are, as to whether we're talking short-term insomnia or long-term insomnia. Um, And there's, you know, there's an interplay
0: between all of those. It's funny because I was going to ask both of you guys. I mean, Lisa, you can educate me a little bit about, I was going to ask you other factors that have to do with sleep, age, sex, genetic, sex, I (laughs) am not do, do you know, I, Because I always, you know, they say, oh, kids have to sleep more, kids have to sleep less. I've heard ridiculous things like as you get older, you need to sleep less, and really I don't feel it. So Lisa, tell me. I mean, Rita hit on it. I, I was just about to ask you guys about that anyway. Um, do those natural things affect our sleep anyway?
2: Yeah, I mean, there, there are some natural, uh, you know, some um, – natural changes in both what we call the sleep architecture which is the relative balance of light sleep and deep deep sleep and um, you know dreaming sleep and and non-dreaming sleep um, as we age Um, and there's also a thing called chronotype Uh, that's the kind of larks um, and owls kind of thing which, you know, has been an anecdotal thing that people have talked about fears, And I have to say, I don't think doctors believed in it very much, uh, but it's a thing. There are definitely some people that uh, wake more easily. Maybe they're a bit more attuned to the light, which is a fascinating thing. I'll just digress briefly, but... Um, a lot of uh, mammalian species, uh, sleep is, is uh, we're very attuned to the light. Um, so um, either to sleep or to wake, of course, for humans, you know, we we sleep at night, but the light, we still have this, I, I'm fascinated by it because it almost feels primitive to me that the light goes in through my eyes and affects a gland in my brain and switches on or off hormones that help me sleep. I mean, isn't that amazing? So that is one of the recommendations for getting some early morning natural light to help set your body clock. So one of the worst things you can do is just get up at different times every day. I sleep in some days, not other days. It actually makes it very hard to set the the body clock to make it easier to fall asleep and easier to wake up. So we know that kids and teenagers even have a need for more sleep and also that teenagers naturally really do find it a lot harder to get up in the morning. And then that kind of changes gradually as we age. I think there's still a lot of dispute about do we need less sleep we're older or is it just that the character of our sleep changes also you know there's a wide variation in how much sleep people need so not everybody needs eight hours sleep it's quite variable so i think relax and kind of find out what your own you know how much do you you need to feel that you're you're feeling okay in yourself and, and you're functioning all right. And it might not, it's like that eight glasses of water that really somebody pulled that out of the sky. Uh, and the yeah. eight-hour sleep is a little bit similar. You know, it's right. like you might not need eight hours or you might need a bit more and that's okay too. Someone it, uh, told me yeah, once it's
0: that- it's almost like calories. You
1: know, you, you, yes. how much do you need to eat? Okay, you need to eat until you don't feel hungry.
0: And some days you
1: might be very hungry and you'd be running around all day and some days you're like, oh, my God, I've still got that Christmas turkey or whatever it is from like two weeks ago and I'm good, you know. So it it does vary. And I I think sometimes we all want to have a perfect answer that applies to everybody. Uh, And unfortunately, that is a difficult one to find. Certainly, you know, with children, I've had Three and you know, two of them used to get up at 4.50 in the morning every single day for years on end. And the other one would sleep in till 10, 11 o'clock, no matter what, I didn't, couldn't wake her, but she wouldn't go to bed till very late. So there's definitely a sort of personality kind of chronobiology component, as Lisa said, but those things also change, you know. You, you know, you might have periods in your life when you suddenly then become an early an early bird and you weren't before and, and that, you know, can vary. Certainly where you guys are right now in, you know, the mists of winter, um, the daylight hours certainly have an impact on sleep. And so it, it can be difficult to have the more regular sleep you're not getting as much daylight. And so, you know, that can cause some disruption for us here right now in, in Australia where it's bright, sunny, you know, in, in the day. It's easier to get more of those lux um, hours to help um, circadian rhythms. But I, I think it. The short answer is, work to your own needs. Right. If you feel like you're not getting enough, you need more. Um, you know that. That's probably how I
0: probably summarize it. I discovered something else that's been going on, and that, being the old man that I am, was kind of a little surprising. So one of the reasons that people are not sleeping, when I say people, I mean young people, because I'm not doing that, is these things in front of us, in front of all three of us. They are 24-7. And if you have a friend, my daughter is one of them. She's uh, online at 2 o'clock in the morning, having a conversation with all her friends, playing games. That's their social circle. They don't even need to be in the same state. They're not. Some of them, you know, work different hours. So the technology is there where to disrupt our sleep or our scheduled sleep is easy. And I think that has had an impact as well. Um, Like I said, I guess it's generational. I'm a technological immigrant, not a technological native, I've been I, I, think I think that that, that,
1: in, that includes me too. Yeah. Um, it's interesting you say about, you know, kids and phones and in their bedrooms. And when I say kids, I kind of guess, you know, anybody who's probably not having somebody to govern their lives, like a, right. an older parent around. Uh, the interesting research is that actually kids really like somebody to take their phone away, leave it or <laughs> As much as they might say otherwise, they actually quite like not having that phone in their bedroom. Um <laughs> And the excuse that I often hear, and I hear this not just from my kids, but, you know, friends' kids, it's like, well, I need an alarm to get up in the morning. You know, it's my phone that gets me up and whatever. So, you know, go, go and get them a proper alarm clock. So certainly, you know, that disrupted nighttime sort of superficial sleep that comes with having phones is is not great. Um, less about the light because there's filters on phones and so on. It's actually more that kind of light arousal that you might have as a new parent or when you're looking after somebody who's sick where you're kind of listening out to see, you know, do they need anything? And that's what you're doing, I think, when you have a device there that might arouse you. That said, a little bit like we had that stress is all bad. Technology is not all bad. You know, no. there's some good things about it, but I, I, I do agree that that kind of arousal that comes from texting at 2 a.m. and 3 a.m., um, yeah, it's certainly uh, probably not recommended for the most part.
0: Okay. so. I have people out there right now that person right there who is listening and saying yeah I understand okay I get it I, I can't sleep because of this I can't sleep because of that but you guys are here to help. Me. what do we do? What are some of the ways we could it's fixable I know it is I, I don't I myself have learned recently of a breathing exercise that I' have done with tapping on my by my heart on my chest and starts off really quick and then I start tapping slower and it slows my whole body down I feel better who thought it would work I had no idea it worked but somebody out there is saying so please okay I, okay I get it <clears throat> what do we do so guys what do we do
2: can, can yeah, I jump in as Lisa. yes Rita's gonna tell high tech I'm gonna talk low tech oh that's um, perfect <laughs> we you know when we were talking about environment and so forth there's a couple of other kind of things that we can look at. If we sleep too hot, we tend to have poor quality sleep. If the environment is not dark enough and if the environment is not quiet enough. So to whatever extent you can actually get about the right temperature when you're sleeping and make your environment reasonably dark and quiet, they all tend to improve the quality of the sleep. That we have. Um, I would also encourage anybody um, who's uh, not still a kid to probably get a medical checkup um, because there are some medical conditions that could, you know, maybe not have huge obvious symptoms like say your thyroid being a little bit out of kilter, that could actually be contributing to your problem. And if you're already on medication, have a talk to your doctor about whether any of those medications can actually interfere with sleep because those are some other reasons, you know, why um, people uh, people's sleep could be affected. They may not any of them be the whole reason, but, you know, sleep, when you've got a sleep problem, it's a chipping away. It's, you know, let's, there's a lot of pieces in that puzzle. Let's, uh, let's do what we can um, and Rita mentioned sleep apnea. If you're overweight, which as we know lots and lots of people are now, you are slightly more at risk of uh, your breathing becoming a little bit obstructed and not clear when you're lying down uh, at night. Um, I know that actually some of the smart watches now have apps that can actually, uh, you know, detect a high likelihood of um, sleep apnea because they can even monitor your blood oxygen through the night, oh. which is a pretty good giveaway because if you have a little pause in your breathing, your oxygen level will drop and the watch will will pick that up. So, these are all the, I mean, that's a little bit high tech, but um, all those other things are really kind of very low tech, but well worth doing if you have a, a chronic problem with sleep just to get, that checkup done and check your environment as well.
1: That
0: was a good Couldn't point. Agree
1: more. Cool, Couldn't
2: cool, agree dark.
0: More. Yeah. And the only thing I would add to it is, and this is just for me, everyone's different. I think the, the best thing you said is you've got to chip away at it. First, yeah, it there dark, is a
1: process you, of elimination, for yeah. sure. Um you know certainly there are things you can do to facilitate sleep onset and there are things you can do to facilitate sustained sleep. And, of course, there are things that you can do to kind of keep a good, you know, cycle of sleep. Um, I think having a look at what you're eating in the day is really important, both from, you know, calorie point of view. You know, is there something you can do in terms of maybe losing some weight if, you know, if that's some of the difficulties that might be contributing? If you're snoring, um, again, that's a good reason to maybe get a checkup. Snoring is certainly not normal in children in particular. And, and even in adults, it might be associated with sleep apnea or something else. So you definitely want to get that checked. Um, you know, if you're drinking perhaps to try and kind of help you relax and kind of get to sleep, have a look at that because although, you know, alcohol certainly helps with sleep onset, it does change your sleep architecture, as Lisa was saying, that amount of light sleep and deep sleep and so on. And yeah, those yeah. So cycles are the booze wears
0: off. You can wake up.
1: Well, exactly. But actually, you tend to not get very good restorative sleep. Mm. So, you know, that sleep that helps clear out the toxins from the brain that, you know, kind of happens is, is diminished a great deal if you're falling asleep to alcohol. And of course, with alcohol, you're going to get a diminishing returns. So you're going to have to drink a bit more as time goes on to get the same effect. So, certainly that, you know, you've got to remember that caffeine has a half life of 12 hours. So, 12 hours later, you've still got half the caffeine that you had. So I would discourage people from having caffeine any time after midday. Some people are more sensitive than others. I mean, I hear people say to me, oh, I can drink five coffees and I'm all good. And I probably would say, just imagine what you might actually sleep like if you didn't have those. Because Again, you don't know what you don't know. So there's that too. And then I think for sleep onset, we do know that taking heat away from the core really helps. So warming up the extremities can be very helpful for sleep onset, but keeping the room cool and dark. So, you know, maybe opening the window, you know, having, you know, blackout blinds can be very helpful. And, you know, get up and go to sleep at the same time. You know, all of us would like the idea of a lie in, but that's actually not that great. Um, and, And certainly, you know, finding your routine that helps. And none of these things are gonna work for everybody but you know having a look at what's happening and how you feel the next day you know getting some exercise in everybody knows all of these things i know the difficulties to actually get them into your routine um but but i think having a look at some of the you know supplements that you might be taking you know there's been recommendations to avoid things like melatonin and i know in the us we can get them in big from costco but we should be very careful about those things so you know Those kinds of pieces are something to also think about.
0: I also heard taking too much vitamin B um, at night will keep you in REM, and that's not a good thing, you know, so I I advise people if they're going to take vitamin B, take it in the mornings. Uh,
1: I I think go to your doctor, get a good checkup. They're the experts. If you're deficient in something, they they will spot it. Uh, Ironically, most people who take vitamins are the very ones who don't need them, but, you know, we digress a little bit, but Certainly deficiencies can contribute to that for
0: sure. Okay. We talked about technology a little bit. And I want to bring this up because you um were looking into something that is very high tech and and um is it's just fascinating to I me. Mean, that's using virtual reality. Yep. Um, to help people with sleep disorders and sleep problems as well as others. Uh could you talk about that a little bit? I, I thought it was like i said i thought it was sure,
1: fascinating. sure. I, I do want lisa to come in with this and i tell you why because she is an expert on cbt which is cognitive mm-hmm. behavioral therapy and as, you know and, and she can tell you a bit more about this and and she's also become an expert on mindfulness and mindfulness based stress reduction as a, an alternative um, or potentially even a complementary approach to treating anxiety um and and that was kind of an approach to helping people manage their anxiety to, to kind of facilitate sleep onset. Do you want to give a little bit of an explanation of that, Lisa, just so that the the listeners can get a sense of how that works?
2: I will. And then you're going to talk about how your solution is going to incorporate that.
1: Well, Um, I'm going to to explain how how I'm hoping to make it easier by
2: using VR. Yes. So getting back to the notion of chipping away, not everything works for everybody and not everything fixes the whole problem. So I guess my clinical philosophy that I've arrived at over years is, um, well, first of all, even though I'm a psychiatrist, I actually prefer not prescribing if I can manage it um, because pills tend to work while you take them and then they the effects tend to be lost when you stop taking them and they all have side effects. So, you know, I believe we have some wonderful medications and that they have absolutely transformed some people's lives. But where there is a non-pharmacological strategy that could either complement medication or work on its own, I I love to use that. So cognitive behavior therapy is a very powerful tool for anxiety, um, depression, stress, and it involves trying to become more aware of how you're thinking about things and trying to not blow things out of proportion, keep a bit of perspective, maybe consider some alternative views and also hand in hand with that, maybe changing the way you behave to um, complement thinking more positively, if you like. Um, I'm trying to put this in a nutshell, Um, but it's quite hard work. It takes a lot of practice And it it doesn't come easily to everybody, and it doesn't always take away 100% of the symptoms. So it's good to have something else. And there is a technique that was developed um, in the US by John Kabat-Zinn, which was actually developed to try to help people with chronic pain who were finding that all the medical solutions still weren't enough for them. And... Um, John had had an interest in um, meditation for many years and he was absolutely kind of committed to the benefits that that would bring. And he liked a particular variety of meditation, which is called mindfulness, which doesn't require you to control your mind or chant a, a, a mantra, but is actually about just trying to change your focus to be on the here and now and try to be non-judgmental about it in terms of saying it's not good, it's not bad, it just is. Mm -hmm. Um, And he put that together in a package which also included some movement and some movement meditation and some breathing control. And he developed a program called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. And that has now a really good evidence basis for its ability to help people with a range of problems. It still takes practice because meditation is a skill. But what I like about John's package, and other people have contributed to it around the world, of course, as well, um, is that it's, it's not... It probably doesn't take as much mental gymnastics as cognitive behavior therapy can sometimes. And you can you can be guided in your meditation, which again makes it a little bit easier. There are a lot of movement-based meditations, which again I think make it easier because you just need to do movements. And this package has been, again, has been shown to be helpful for physical conditions like chronic pain, actually for some uh, skin conditions that are chronic, which is interesting like psoriasis, um, but also anxiety, depression, uh, a lot of personality uh, challenges where people might be oversensitive um, to things, maybe linking back to childhood trauma. So it's It's kind of like a really helpful thing, which I like to think now we've got that in our skill bag as well, that we can also call on that. But even that takes a certain amount of active involvement, which might be too hard for some people if they're really super stressed or really very anxious or depressed. So, I think that's where Rita had this brilliant idea about, can we maybe guide people in a way that will capture their attention more fully and just make it easier for them to develop these skills. And that's where you take over, Rita, and talk about your brilliant idea.
1: So I, I actually came to the idea of using virtual reality because I had been working at the Veterans Administration in the US for about 10 years and I'd worked on a range of uh, studies looking at better ways to improve mood, improve anxiety, um, really with quite, I guess, impacted populations. You know what our combat veterans have been through. It's they're, they're a tough. They've they've sustained a lot of trauma, and you know the the sort of the statistics are terrifying. And I would interview these veterans, and you know, all of them would say, I've tried CBT, I can't do CBT. It's too hard. They're asking me to think about this, they're asking me to do that. They, and and of course, I, I don't know how to do it. I don't have the language. It's not what I've been trained to do. It's I can't do it. I can't think and I can't focus. So probably of the literally thousands of veterans I've interviewed, I probably had one, maybe two at best, who've said, I met the most amazing therapist. They taught me CBT, it's changed my life. Cool. Everybody else would say, it sucks, can't do it. Um, And so what they then started doing was a program called Breath. And in fact, there's been a a movie made about a veteran that walked across the U.S., literally, you know, teaching the power of the the breath. And, And the breath is a kind of a way to do mindfulness, of being kind of in the present moment. And as somebody who's a little bit hyper, as you can probably tell, the idea of sitting in my present moment is extremely challenging. And so I thought, well, let me have a look at this mindfulness thing. They keep talking about it, it works. I've been working on a program, looking at yoga, doing remote uh, yoga through COVID with veterans who had their caregivers and the care burden and to try and ease care burden. And the results were really, really positive. But I just thought, well, It's hard to do. They still struggle to do that kind of mindfulness piece of like being in the now and kind of not being distracted and kind of focusing. And so then I thought, well, what can we do to facilitate being in the present moment? And, you know, we've had all these coloring books and all that kind of stuff, but that didn't really elevate it to the level of sustained relaxation that actually helps with with the stress. And so there was in a program using VR to help with pain management, both for light sedation as well as for chronic pain management. They had used it for prolonged exposure therapy for veterans that had combat trauma because the way to kind of manage um, the anxiety was to actually imagine, envisage what the combat scene might be like and to try and descale the stress by kind of gradually exposing you to the environment, which is where at least there's kind of the egg spot on that kind of exposing you to an environment that's stressful and kind of managing that stress, knowing that that anxiety, you're not going to have a heart attack, you're not going to die. Right. And so they had been using virtual reality to do that, using virtual reality to kind of facilitate the imagination of being in that combat trauma. And it was really powerful at reducing the stress. It was lots of good evidence to show reductions in heart rate, cortisol, you name it just from that kind of facilitation of the imagination. Because remember, when you're disrupted with sleep, not only can you not focus and can't think, you also can't imagine very well. This whole thing up here isn't working. But the visual system can fast track all of that. It literally is the kind of the principal agent that the brain will go to when all else fails. What's been seen can't be unseen for want of a great word. And so VR, Because of the design of the headset, and I'm not a technical person by any stretch, so I'm not coming to it because I think VR is great in and of itself. I'm coming to it because VR is powerful. And as Lisa said right at the beginning, if it works, let's just use it. You know, We don't really care what it is, but if it works, let's make use of it. And so the headset blocks out external stimulation, so you kind of forget where you are, so it creates a space. And- if you've ever tried it, and I don't know if you have, but I urge you to try it. If you've good quality, immersive content, and the key is immersive. So the things that actually help you to suspend reality and be in that space, you can actually be so immersed visually that you actually are in the present moment mm. without having to make any effort. And so VR uses the visual system to actually facilitate you being in the here and now. No different than when you're trying to watch a movie and you're so engrossed in it that you go, wow, how did those three hours go by? So it's that kind of component. It's using the visual system to help you be in the here and now and literally a few minutes of VR in the right immersive environment lowers your heart rate. Again, same cortisol measures. It literally changes brain activity. So it is actually quite powerful. What we don't know and the interest in the research for Lisa and I is like how much, where, when, (laughs) <laughs> OK, because that's what really matters, because when you go to your doctor, it's all good. And Kim's saying or she's saying, oh, hey, we got this great new pill, but they don't know when you should take it, how much you should take it. And, you know, when you're going to get better, then it's a useless kind of a pill. So we're trying to get to that kind of nuanced understanding yes we know it works but we want to know which one is better for whom should they do it in the evening should they do it in the daytime you know is it before bedtime is it going to be the same as as you said those flashing announcements that kids are getting in the middle of the night or is it something useful and that's where the interest for both of us is coming in is finding as as lisa's bio has said a practical solution to a real world problem and and that's what we're both trying to do
0: you know, I guess we, we 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 got a lot of information. We're coming to a uh, close of our time together, but oh, I'm sorry, I,
1: I was talk too much. I apologize. no,
0: no, no, no. Hey, it's my show. I can go as long as I want. Uh, <laughs> but but I I don't want to go too long. Um, but I want people to take away a couple of things, and one of the things is that as you have both said, you can chip away at the thing that's keeping you from sleeping or getting the right amount of the right kind. There's so many things to look at. If you look at the old school stuff like 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 me, you know, look at what you're eating. Don't don't drink and go to sleep. Like booze, you you the booze is gonna wear off, you're gonna wake up. Do breathing exercises, something I learned. You guys have hit the nail right on the head. And the future that's coming out with virtual reality and other technologies, like like Rita said it's, they're not all evil, not all technologies are evil and keep us from sleeping. Some of them will help us find that way, that mindfulness that you both have told us is so important. I want to thank you both so much. I learned so much from from having guys like you on. I mean, I really do. I I feel like I could get a good night's sleep now. The The
1: only takeaway I would add to that, Will, is I really want people to go and get Evidence-based information. Okay, don't do Doctor Google. You know, right. go to organisations that are impartial. They're there to provide good information for you um, and help you guide and get navigated. Because if you're informed, you can advocate for yourself. I am certainly not saying BR is better than anything else. I, I think Lisa's saying the same thing if this might work for you and this might not work for you, but I think go to an organization that has information that's impartial and has your best interests at heart. So, you know, I I think, you know, you being us-based, you know, of course, the American Academy of sleep medicine, they have a whole host of impartial information that's evidence-based. They have, you know, Technology as simple as a calculator for how much sleep you need based on age. They have you know, information about finding a local sleep center or a local sleep doctor that's been approved, board certified, et cetera. Go and get good information and don't be afraid to keep asking and keep going back and say, hey, this isn't working. I think every clinician, I'm sure Lisa will sign on this, is committed and passionate about helping people. We're certainly not in it for the money, I can promise you. So, Go and get good information. There is hope and you can get better. But don't do Dr. Google and go over to Costco and get a packet size of, you know, a melatonin or whatever. That's not the right way to go about it.
0: And, of course, one of those organizations is the American Institute of Stress. There you go.
1: Let's put a plug in for that one by all means. If you
0: go to stress.org, you will be able to read evidence-based materials by people like Rita. Yes. So it's just written a very yes. good article. Thank you. And Contentment, uh, and Contentment Magazine, which is the whole magazine, was dedicated to sleep this time. Um, so I, I want to thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for getting up so early. I no, know. I
2: think- we're <laughs> up. You're worth it. <laughs> we're we're up anyway. So well, you know, the, the sun's up at five thirty at the moment, so we're up. <laughs> okay,
0: well, just because the sun's up, it doesn't mean you guys have to be up. I appreciate well, I, you getting up I'm trying
1: summer. to cure my my um, my just, jet lag, so jet lag. I absolutely need to get my luxes in before nine thirty a.m. as they say. That's the critical window. So you're All doing right. yourself. Can available. I can I add one little thing about
2: getting of help? Course. Is um. Just to say, any improvement will make a difference. I think sometimes people think a bit all or nothing. It's got to be fixed, and I've got to sleep like my next door neighbor who sleeps like a baby. Actually, you don't. Any little bit of improvement, you'll feel a benefit. So, I'm sorry, I just had to add that. So people don't think they've got to get it all fixed.
0: (laughs) I I agree. Again, I want to thank you both for joining us today. You give us a lot of great advice and insights. And for you, those listening, I want you to remember to read uh, read his article in Contentment Magazine. Again, go to stress.org, subscribe to the magazine, and don't forget to subscribe to this <laughs> YouTube station. This has been your host, Will Heckman. Thank you all for joining us again today. Please follow this podcast, and remember to support us by helping make the, uh, your support makes these podcasts possible. And I want to remind everybody, as, as Dr. Lampe just said— Stress is different for everyone, and for there is no one stress reduction management strategy that is right for everyone. So that means you need to join us next time, because we're going to explore more and different stress management strategies and insights. And remember to visit again, stress.org, and gather those information and tools and techniques to help you live a happier, healthier, hopefully a longer life, and I hope the information you've You heard today from Rita, Lisa, and myself will help you find contentment. So good day, everyone. Good day, guys.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Good day.